Hi, I'm Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Jesus and His People, with a message entitled, Surprised by Joy. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 16, verses 16 to 24, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When C.S. Lewis, that brilliant and distinguished professor of literature at Oxford, found faith in Christ, he described his conversion as being surprised by joy. He wrote, joy is not a substitute for sex. Sex is very often a substitute for joy. I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are substitutes for joy. Lewis wrote that the secularism under which we in the Western world had now lived for, in his day, about 100 years, he said it was like a spell put on us by a witch in one of those old fairy tales. Now that we're under a spell of naturalism, none of us quite gets what we're missing. But now and again, we catch just a hint, a little glimmer, a small scent, that there is an eternal joy, that joy for which we were created. But it passes so quickly, we forget because the strong spell remains unbroken. But at conversion, the spell is broken, and we do see eternal joy. And although we have not yet fully grasped it, because what we now have is but a foretaste of what is to come. Yet this foretaste has overwhelmed us. This is the joy discovered in conversion. You know, on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, a night that was filled with dread and the anticipation of death, of haunting fear and uncertainty, suddenly Jesus starts speaking to his disciples about joy. So I'm reading John 16, verses 16 to 24. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Well, look back again at verse 16. You see, at the outset, it might seem that the interpretation of this verse is, well, it's easy. Seeing Jesus no longer must refer to his death on the cross and then his burial. And then a little while, well, that must refer to the three days in the tomb. And finally, when they see him again, that must refer to the resurrection. So from that perspective, the interpretation of this text is easy. See, the emotions of the disciples would run from despair to ecstasy. So from that perspective, this is just a passage about the emotions the disciples would face over the crucifixion. Now, if that's the right interpretation, then this text is not about enduring joy, but it's about the roller coaster of feelings from terror to devastation to loss of hope and then to sudden overwhelming delight. 
So it has nothing to do with enduring joy, at least not the kind that Lewis spoke about. But let's reconsider. Uh, First, please notice that the context of this teaching is the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And back in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus has been telling the disciples it's to their advantage that he go away. And then in 16, verse 7, going away meant that he would leave them, return to the Father, and then they, for the rest of their lives, you know, disciples would not see him physically again. However, he says, it's for your good, for I will send the Holy Spirit. So that is the first reason I think we should reconsider that simple reading of this passage. Well, secondly, please notice that in the text we have read, well, in verse 22, Jesus promises the disciples that when he comes to them, no one will take their joy from them. This will be a joy that's permanent. You know, that sounds a lot different than the kind of happiness that we feel when something wonderful happens. You know, as all of us know, when something wonderful does happen, uh, we're happy for hours, maybe months, uh, maybe even a bit longer, but the happiness of a wonderful event eventually fades. Well, the same would have been true of the disciples if the passage before us spoke only of seeing Jesus after the resurrection. So, so here's what I think Jesus is saying. A little while and you will see me no longer. And he means in just a short time, the soldiers are going to come and arrest me. I'm going to be nailed to a cross and you'll see me tortured and humiliated and I will look completely helpless and then I will die and be buried. And then you will see me again. And yeah, he does mean his resurrection to be sure, But because of the context of this passage, he must also mean Pentecost. He means that the Holy Spirit will come after he has bodily left the disciples. And even though he's not physically present, the Holy Spirit will compensate for his absence. And when that happens, an unceasing joy will be theirs. Now, there's a kind of a tension in the pages of the New Testament that that helps us to understand this. So, for instance, In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Paul writes, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, on this side of eternity, we are away from the Lord, and we, as it were, are blind to his presence, and so we simply trust in what he told us. You know, years ago when my dad passed away, I I remember there were times when I genuinely envied him because his battle with the flesh was over. He'd won the war in faith, and now dad actually saw Jesus. I mean, think of it. No struggle with sin, only pure, undefiled, holy, soul-satisfying joy. Now, we don't have that while we're at home in the body, but as Paul says still, we're of good courage. And although we do not see him now, we walk by faith. Now, now, while that's true, if you read John 16, 16, And if our interpretation is right, through the Holy Spirit, we do see him. We see him through the insight given to us by the indwelling spirit. And Paul seems to hint at that in 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So in other words, the Holy Spirit allows us to see Jesus from a vantage point, which the disciples never had of him when they were actually following him physically. I think that's what Peter is talking about when he speaks of those who who came to believe in Christ after his ascension. See, in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. 
and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So he means that joy that, well, that Lewis found in his conversion. Conversion is being surprised by joy. Now look again at verses 17 and 18. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Now, what's confused the disciples is that Jesus said that they would see him because he's going to the Father. Well, how can he go to the Father and then they would see him? I mean, none of that made sense. And then there's another point of confusion. What does he mean by a little while? How long is that? When is that over? How long until all this confusion clears up? So what is meant by a little while? So from the perspective of the disciples, this is what they learned. They learned that the time of sorrow would be short. In a way, I think we can all identify with that. I mean, the disciples know that they're standing before a time of sorrow. It's going to be short, but how short is that? See, I think I can identify. Sorrow is a part of this life. I often wonder how many who are listening to my voice right now are going through a time of intense sorrow. And if you are, let me quote to you Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The point is not to ask, how long is the night? See, the point is to anticipate that the night is coming to an end, and with the end of night comes an explosion of light. Now, here's what I'm saying. Joy is the abiding treasure of every Christian. Are you joyless? Well, you need to be filled with the Spirit. You see, I know that there are some of us who are sad or dejected or bitter or despairing or just jaded in our attitudes. Christ came to deliver you from that. So please don't misunderstand me. Joy and sorrow are not really opposites. You can deeply grieve, but your joy never leaves you. But joy and despair, those are opposites. Suicide, for instance, is premised on despair. It thinks the morning will not come, and so it embraces endless darkness. But hope for the morning banishes despair. You know, the Bible affirms that despair is a part of living in this fallen and broken world. It is, however, but a little while. Morning is surely coming. Did you know that Back to the Bible Canada has a weekly video Bible teaching series? All videos, both archived and current, are easily accessible on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. The videos offer the excellence of Bible teaching you've come to expect from Dr. John Newfeld, providing insight into God's Word, God's character, and the life He has called us to live. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. There you can also access past video series and programs, including our recent virtual worship event, The Gathering, 45 wonderful minutes of worship, Bible teaching, laughter, and encouragement. For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. If you are falling into despair, the only cure is to find genuine hope. Notice I didn't just say hope. See, biblical hope isn't hope the way we use the word in our culture. 
I hope I'm going to pass my exams. I, I hope Judy falls in love with me. I hope I'm going to win the lottery. You see, in our world, hope carries with it the sense of uncertainty. Not so in the Bible. There is genuine hope. God, who cannot lie, has promised something to us in the future. I may not know when that promise is going to be fulfilled, but I know it will. That's genuine hope. That ends in lasting joy. So let's remember what Jesus told his disciples. The time of sorrow is short. Secondly, they must have hope, hope for a lasting joy. Now look again at verses 20 to 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus is saying that when he's crucified, a very hard and severe temptation to despair will await you. The disciples will see Jesus seemingly powerless in the hands of the Jewish and Roman leadership. Uh, They'll feel an anguish that's unlike anything they've ever known before. It will seem like their world is coming undone, and in their deepest trial, they'll look up and see their enemies taunting and mocking them. Their experience of grief will seem almost unbearable, and that's how they're going to experience his cross. But then Jesus gives the example of a woman giving birth to a child. And if, and if we're not careful here, we're going to think this simply means that as difficult as some labors are, it's forgotten when the child is born. But, but that's not really the illustration. Look at it this way. See, it frequently happens when people go through hard times that's followed by prosperity that's overwhelming, that they will forget their former anguish and they'll become ecstatic. So you might imagine someone finding out that that the money they've invested in the stocks crash and there's nothing left. They're flat broke. It's devastating. Three weeks later, something amazing happens. The stock rebounds, doubles its value. How would they feel? Fantastic. That's how they'd feel. But I want you to think about Christ's illustration of the woman in labor differently. You see, the labor is necessary. The pain of childbirth is the pathway that must be followed before the joy of the child can be born. In other words, the sorrow is necessary to get to the joy. And of course, that was true for the cross. If not for the cross, no forgiveness, no giving of the Spirit. I mean, the same is true also for the sufferings of the disciples. The suffering is a pathway to glory. Listen to how Paul expressed that in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I know there are some who find 2 Corinthians 4.17 to be offensive. You know, what they ask is slight and momentary about cancer or crippling arthritis or standing at the graveside of your son or your daughter. Nothing light there. How dare anyone even suggest that it's light? So we become overwhelmed with anger towards those who suggest it might be so. But Paul's not saying that suffering's light. Neither did Jesus say that. Rather, what Paul is doing is asking us to take a scale, not a bathroom scale, but one of those old ones, which came in the form of a balance in which you would put a weight on one side and weigh on the other and compare the two. 
See, on the one hand, he says, weigh out the awfulness of this world with its disappointments and griefs, sins, errors, bad judgments, life-altering illnesses, and on the other side, place the weight of glory. And suddenly we see the point. The point is not that suffering is an illusion. It's just that eternity has such remarkable, astonishing density that its weight simply overwhelms with ease the weight of this world's suffering. But still, we've not quite yet gotten what Paul wants to tell us. He says here, and I quote, this momentary light affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight in glory. And that's exactly what Jesus said. See, first, sorrow is purposeful. And it's this fact that some of us have missed. Some of us are angry with God over illness or a disappointment or a death or financial struggles or an unhappy childhood. The list simply goes on and on. And never once did it dawn on you that this sorrow is purposeful. Second, the joy that Jesus speaks about is not temporary. It's enduring. See, weeping may last for the night. And it might seem like a very long night, but the morning will come. And the day that Jesus promises will not pass away. Some of us who are not joyful need to memorize or underline or put it into a frame and mount it in our homes. Joy does come in the morning. Now in verses 23 to 24, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said that the time of sorrow is short, that is, compared to eternity. The expectation of joy is great now. The promise for help in the meantime, well, that's breathtaking. Jesus tells his disciples that the time is shortly at hand when they will ask him for nothing. That is because he won't be there physically. But something new is going to happen. The new thing is not that they'll ask the Father for anything and it will be done. Look at verse 23 closely. The new thing is that they'll ask the Father in the name of Jesus. Now, commonly, today we say that prayer is to the Father, in the name of the Son, with the power of the Holy Spirit. But the danger here is that the line, in the name of Jesus, has become, you know, kind of a throwaway line for many of us. And the point is not that it's some kind of a formula in praying. The point is different. We're not to think of saying, in Jesus' name, as if it were some kind of a magical formula. Imagine for a moment they, you decided that you'd pay a visit to Buckingham Palace and you'd drop in on the English monarch for tea. And you flew to London and you walked up to the palace. You told the guard that's what you had decided. Of course, you know you'd never get in. But now imagine you have a letter from the prime minister authorizing you to spend time with royalty. Imagine you went to the gate of Buckingham Palace. They saw your letter of authorization. They asked for your ID. They called the office of the British prime minister. And after it was verified, you're invited in. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. So when we come to the gates of heaven to speak with the great God of creation, the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the God whose holiness devastates his enemies, we then say, oh, great God, I come before your throne, having been authorized to come by the only name that you honor, the name of Jesus. And the Father says, if he has authorized you, then come. And Jesus is promising those of us who believe in him that he has given us his authorization. So let's review. Sorrow's real and purposeful, but it's not enduring. In terms of eternity, it's short. 
Joy, on the other hand, is enduring. And furthermore, in this in-between time, we have an authorization from Jesus himself to come before the Father and bring all our requests to him. It was the late Dr. R.A. Torrey. He was one of the great Bible teachers of a past generation. He was the founder of Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He's the author of a number of books that are still being read, especially his books on prayer. And Dr. Torrey and his wife, Clara, had an incident of sadness that would devastate their lives. It was their 12-year-old daughter that was accidentally killed. The funeral was on a rainy day, and they stood around the grave on that miserable day. And they laid her body in the ground, and Clara said, I'm so glad that Elizabeth is with the Lord and not in that box. But even though they knew it was true, their hearts were broken. Dr. Torrey said the next day as he's walking down the street, the whole thing broke anew. He was overwhelmed with a deep sense of loneliness of the years ahead without her, the heartbreak of an empty house, and all the other implications. And then this is what he wrote. Just then, this fountain, the Holy Spirit, that I had in my heart broke forth with such power as I think I had never experienced before. And it was the most joyful moment I had ever known in my life. Oh, how wonderful is the joy of the Holy Spirit. Well, the joy of the Holy Spirit is the joy that reminds us of Christ. So I want to plead with you who mourn, have joy. I want to point you to the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the consoler, the helper, the upholder. I want also to remind you that Jesus has authorized you to go in the presence of your Father. Remember this, the sorrow is not without a purpose, it never was. Without that hope, you're gonna fall away. The sorrows of this life will not crush you because in fact, you have an advocate who reminds you of Jesus and Jesus is taking you into the Father's presence. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, Is it possible that sometimes our lack of joy or perhaps the misunderstanding of what biblical joy really is, is a reason for some falling away from the faith? Yeah, I I think that uh, really the biblical understanding of joy is really also the definition of what it means to believe. Um, You know, if you look at the pages of Scripture throughout the Psalms, but even the teachings of Jesus, I mean, he continues to hearken back to this passionate appeal for joy. And so, yeah, I do think you're right, Ben. Um, I think people have not understood the joy that is at the heart of the uh, Christian message, the joy that the Holy Spirit gives us, and uh, the joy that we have in hoping for, longing for the second coming of Jesus, he will come and receive us as his own. I mean, that should fill our hearts, and it does drive us on. So I think you're right. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. These efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. You know, whatever stage of life you're in, you've probably considered the impact you want to leave on your family, on your community, or in the world. Providing sustainable support to the Back to the Bible Canada ministry is one key way you can have an impact on the lives of thousands. We have a goal of adding 331 new monthly givers to our new monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship. Won't you help us reach that goal? 
and ensure the message of God's Word continues to be available and its message continues to transform lives. To learn more about the program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship.